This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody, this is Steven Siegel, your host at the New Books Network, and I'm delighted today to have on the podcast for uh, New Books Maya Peterson, who is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Professor Peterson's research and teaching interests include Russian and Central Asian history, as well as the history of the environment science, technology, and medicine. Her first monograph, this book, which we'll talk about today, is Pipe Dreams, Water and Empire in Central Asia's Aral Sea Basin, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019, and part of its series, Studies in Environment and History. The book was made possible by grants from the SSRC, Fulbright Hayes, and the University of California Humanities Research Institute. Welcome to our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. So, um, Maya, I know that you have a lot of interests in environmental history, and and I see you're working on new uh, projects, transnational projects in Russia and Eurasia and Central Asia through the 19th and and 20th centuries. Can you tell our listeners how you came to be interested in environmental history and, and this project? What motivated you to write the book? Yeah, sure. So I did a master's program in Russian and Central Asian studies. And during that time, I was hoping to work on a project on the history of Central Asia, because uh, in college, I had had a lot of opportunities to learn Russian language and study Russian literature and Russian history. But I had become very curious about the parts of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union that were not Russian. And Central Asia stood out to me as a place that I knew very little about. So in this master's program, I thought I would do some kind of historical project on Central Asia. And that was when I realized that if I didn't know very much about Central Asia, it would be very difficult to come up with an original project on Central Asian history. So what I ended up doing was uh, something quite different. I spent a couple months in... Central Asia in the summer of 2004. And I talked to people who worked for environmental NGOs, because that's always been one of my longstanding interests, uh, interests in environmental issues. And I had learned about the tragedy of the Aral Sea. Um, So in the late 20th century, the Aral Sea, which was once considered the fourth largest lake in the world in terms of surface area, had started to disappear, and that was largely due to river diversion projects 
um, taking water from these rivers and trapping it behind uh, hydroelectric dams and reservoirs or diverting it to fields for agriculture, mostly cotton agriculture. Um, and uh, so as a result, this, the two main rivers uh, of, of Central Asia, the Amu Darya and the Sir Darya, which had once flowed into the Aral Sea, uh, by the 1980s really no longer reached the sea. And the level of the sea uh, began to decline precipitously during that period. And so I wanted to talk to people who were interested in, in trying to restore the balance of the sea. Uh, it had once been an important fishing uh, fisheries area in the Soviet Union. And um, people who had once made their living from fishing in the sea were no longer able to do this. So I, I traveled to the region and I talked to people who worked for these NGOs that were trying to restore the sea. And that became a part of my, my master's thesis. But it was really more political science work. And so once I started my PhD in history, I decided that I really wanted to go back and kind of understand where, uh, that, um, where those river diversion projects had come from. Sorry, this is not very eloquent at all. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great start. Um, and I, I think... Um, I know that you did your PhD at Harvard University and um, from the historians there, Kelly O'Neill, Terry Martin, also their, their Central Asian uh, program from many years back. Where did you decide to go actually in Central Asia? I know you used a lot of archives for the project. Yeah, well, this was a, a, a challenge when I first thought in graduate school of, of studying water, um, the history of, of rivers and the history of water management, uh, I didn't quite know where to look. And in fact, uh, the first time I tried to write an environmental history paper in graduate school, uh, when I went to the library catalog and, and thought about how one writes the history of a river, um, what kinds of sources one used, then I, I, I realized that the, that prospect was, was more difficult than I had initially thought. And so for that class, I actually ended up writing a paper about nationalism, which was a subject that I was much more comfortable with. Uh, but then I got a grant to go to archives in, uh, in Russia and in Central Asia. This was after my second year of graduate school. And uh, so I, I went to the archives in Moscow and I just started looking for anything that had to do with, with Central Asia and had to do with water. And that was actually where I discovered the, uh, some papers related to the Grand Duke uh, Nikolai Konstantinovich Romanov, who is uh, the subject of Chapter 2 of the book. Uh, he had, was a member of the imperial family who had caused so many scandals at the court in St. Petersburg that he was banished to the borderlands of the empire. And he ended up spending most of his life in Tashkent, where he devoted himself to irrigating the arid spaces of Central Asia. So that was kind of my first uh, clue that there might be some interesting stories to be told from the archives. Um, also in the Moscow archives, I discovered a photo album. Uh, and this photo album was from 1937. And on the, the front cover... Uh, it depicted a, a drawing of a canal with uh, two excavators, one on either side, 
and uh, these ornate cotton bowls in, in either corner framing the photograph. And uh, this photo album led me to the subject of chapter six of the book, which is the Vaksh uh, Irrigation Construction Project in a valley in the south of Tajikistan, what's now Tajikistan, on the Afghan border. So there were these little clues uh, in the archives that, that led me to want to learn more. And so that summer, I actually ended up going to Tajikistan for a few weeks. And I found that the Vaksh Irrigation Construction Project actually has its own archive there. And uh, so that that became really the um, one of the main sources for that chapter, the records of uh, of the construction project, of the administration, uh, all of their concerns about uh, how to recruit laborers uh, and how to undertake a massive construction project in a very remote part of the Soviet Union. And uh, I also found out from digging around a little bit more in Tajikistan that the construction project published its own newspaper. And that ended up being a really valuable source for learning about the lives and experiences of the workers at the construction site. So of course, peasants and farmers and lowly construction workers very rarely leave us sources that allow us to get a glimpse into their lives. But I found that a very local Soviet newspaper was actually a much uh, richer source often than the, the central newspapers. The central newspapers could report that things were going very well in very distant corners of the Soviet Union, but a very local uh, Soviet newspaper really could only uh, tell the truth about how things really were and uh, then exhort people to do better. So that was a really rich source uh, that I found for that. So that first trip was, was really essential for uh, finding out what kinds of sources I could work with. And then I was able to go back for a longer time uh, and, and visit some other archives. Yeah, and I'm really glad if I can give a plug to Cambridge University Press here that they um, have your bibliography and all of the archives and I think 40 or 50 historical newspapers and journals. Um, it, this is a great resource for future researchers because not all presses decide to do that. And increasingly with, with first monographs, um, you know, they don't want 40, 50 extra pages and, and for you to detail all of your sources, but you've got the central state archives from Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, um, as, as well as the Russian state archives. And that's wonderful. Um, could you give us an idea of the layout of the book and how you decided, I think, um, to arrange your chapters? I know that you have an introduction and epilogue. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with the Errol Sea, and in, in many ways, I see your book as a kind of prehistory of, of the Errol Sea. So, how did you how did you arrange the chapters and the structure of the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is, in many ways, a prehistory of the disappearance of the Errol Sea. So, uh, I argue really that a story that's often told as beginning in the 1960s with the beginning of, of large-scale uh, river diversions from the Amudarya and the Sirdarya, those two main rivers of, of Central Asia that uh, flow into the Aral Sea. 
those were, were projects that began in the 1960s, but I argue really that we have to go back uh, almost a century earlier, back to the 1860s, which is when the Russians uh, began the conquest of the region uh, that became Russian Turkestan and then later Soviet Central Asia. And so the book is, is structured in that way. It starts with Russians encroaching onto the lands uh, between the Amudarya and the Sirdarya, uh, making those part of the Russian Empire. And then it progresses chronologically from there. And those uh, two cases that I mentioned, the case of uh, the Grand Duke Nikolai Konstantinovich Romanov, uh, who really dedicated his life to irrigating the arid borderlands of the empire uh, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that's one case study that I spend a lot of time on. Uh, the next case study that I look at is in a region that's now on the border of uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. This is the Chu or Chui River Valley. Um, and uh, this was the site of a, a large-scale irrigation project in uh, the 19-teens that was intended to make uh, the region there, which was known as, as Semirechia or the land of seven rivers, was designed to make this region the breadbasket of Russian Turkestan, of Russian Central Asia. And that was because starting in the late 19th century already, uh, Russians had been encouraging Central Asians to grow more and more cotton on already irrigated land instead of food. And so this new project was intended to alleviate uh, the food hunger of farmers who had, who had begun growing uh, cotton crops in, instead of food. But the breakout of uh, the First World War, followed by many years of revolution and civil war, which lasted even longer in Central Asia than in other parts of the former Russian Empire, uh, this was really, um, in many ways, put an end to this project, although the, the Soviets would continue it um, in, in the 1930s, but it became more a site of sugar beet production uh, rather than wheat and grain for uh, the rest of the region. So that was the, the second case study. And then the third case study was the, the case that I mentioned the Vaksh Irrigation Construction Project in southern Tajikistan. And uh, this chapter is all about um, the development of the Vaksh River Valley into a site for growing Egyptian cotton, which was of even higher quality than the American cotton, which had already been introduced in the late 19th century in the Tsarist period. And the idea behind the Vaksh Irrigation Construction Project, uh, besides making this valley the most important site for producing Egyptian cotton in the Soviet Union, was also to serve as a kind of um, a beacon that would shine over the uh, supposedly benighted parts of uh, the East, what the Soviets called the East, places like Afghanistan, and British India. The idea was that people would come to the borders of the Soviet Union. They would look across the river, the Panj River, uh, at what the Soviets were doing on the other side in the Vaksh uh, Valley, and they would be so excited that they would either you know, want to come and help 
or they would want to build socialism in their own countries. So that's that's the sixth chapter. So two, four, and six are case studies. And uh, then in between, I intersperse uh, some of the historical developments. So starting with the, the Russian conquest of Central Asia, and then moving into making Central Asia uh, a colony of the Russian Empire, of trying to uh, take charge of the region, introduce new uh, methods of, of water management and new methods of, of water regulation, new methods of governance, uh, the transition to Soviet rule, uh, new Soviet visions for the modernization and transformation of Central Asia, which I argue were, were very much rooted in these earlier dreams and visions for the, the transformation of the region. And yeah. then in the epilogue, I, I take the story up to the 1960s, the disappearance of the RLC and, and even today. Yeah. And I, I see um, in many ways, the story of, of modernization and transformation and the civilizing mission tied up with these, these dreams. They're almost like dreams of the future. But I think you have a very interesting kind of story and juxtaposition in which the Russian Empire is, is a dream that looks back to the past in some ways, the ancient, the ancient hydraulic societies, right? And then the Bolshevik story becomes one which is um, looking forward and, and aggressively so. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? You know, you, you mentioned things like um, sedentarization and, and trying to move Turkic-speaking peoples who are semi-nomadic semi in, into a kind of new world. So how, how, did, how does that factor into the civilizing project that is in your book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Russians, like Europeans and Americans, uh, had a very teleological notion of progress uh, that came out of the 19th century. This was the idea that uh, there were primitive peoples, starting with hunter-gatherers and uh, these kinds of, of nomadic pastoralists, herders, uh, who eventually would take up agriculture, uh, settle down, and become more civilized in the process. That civilized uh, uh, society depended on agriculture. Of course, from that came then later industrialized society, cities, uh, and, and this was what it meant to be modern. This was the, the trajectory. And so for the Russians, uh, just the way uh, their counterparts in Europe or, or in America, looking at, for instance, the, the Native Americans, uh, when uh, Europeans looked at uh, nomadic peoples or when Americans looked at, at Native Americans, they saw people who were, were backwards, were primitive, were in need of, of civilization. And so for the Russians, the Turkic-speaking uh, nomadic, really semi-nomadic peoples of Central Asia, uh, who were, of course, then also semi-sedentary. Many of them practiced some agriculture, uh, but the Russians really didn't see it that way. They saw them um, as, as people who were in need of uh, of civilization. Also, of course, making people sedentary makes them easier to control. It makes them easier to tax, right. makes them easier to count uh, and keep point. track of. Um, yeah. So, so the Russians, uh, 
really hoped to uh, convince Central Asians that uh, agriculture was uh, in their best interest, uh, even in those areas where agriculture had not been practiced on a wide scale, mostly because uh, in all of Central Asia, it's really quite difficult uh, to practice agriculture. So the Aral Sea Basin is arid. Uh, large parts of it are, are even desert. And uh, so even in the places where there is water available nearby, um, irrigated agriculture is really uh, the only way to, um, to make a, a sedentary society possible, uh, depending on ra- rainfall is, is really uh, too hazardous and too difficult. Yeah, and I think you get at that very well in the first chapter on the Amudarya and Sirdarya. What were some of the the typical crops? I mean, you even mention as an environmental historian, I really want to ask more questions about your environmental history take. There, there's no pattern for crop rotation, right? So how I mean, it depends on the area, but how how exactly is harvesting? done in these projects? And then how do you get the information from, from travelers and people like Count Pollen who are reporting on it? Yeah, it's difficult to tell because, of course, they are critical if uh, people don't seem to be practicing the kinds of uh, two-field or three-field rotations that Europeans are uh, used to. Um, so, but many of the crops were ones that were well adapted to uh, more kind of arid regions, things like uh, millet and sorghum, uh, rather than, for instance, wheat. Uh, cotton was grown, but it was uh, on a much uh, smaller scale than uh, under the, the Russian czars and then later the Soviets. Um, rice was grown, but it was really grown only in places where there was an abundance of water. So rice might be grown, for instance, at the end uh, of an irrigation system where uh, water pooled, uh, you know, before being drained off. And uh, so that there were a lot of limitations on what people could grow and when they could grow it. And depending on what people in an area were growing, uh, there were elaborate systems in place to make sure that everybody got the right amount of water at the right time, but really only that much. So nobody could could grow crops that required so much water that no one else on the system would be able to use that water. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and and I think canals become really important with that. So what were some of the, the canal projects that you discovered in your sources? I, I seem to remember, you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the Erie Canal. I grew up in upstate New York and, you know, um, the Erie Canal was built in the 1820s, right? And then it also displaced trade systems. So I think that's a really interesting part of your book as well. It, you know, you have, a, on the one hand, the celebration of engineering and technocracy and so forth, but there were 
transportation routes like the Silk Road, which um, were transformed in their own way by the 1860s and 1870s. And, and I wonder with the canal projects, especially in the so-called hun- Hungry Step, when that canal began, um, how did that work exactly? I mean, how did you figure out um, the, the information about, let's say, the scale of building these canals? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good question. So uh, are you asking about the sources? Or Yeah, well, I mean, your impression, you have a lot of schemes, let's say you have, yes. <laughs> you know, there are many schemes that the Russians have from the imperial forward through the Soviet period. And, and, and many of them work, and some of them fail, there's a short term and a long term. But with the right. transport, with the transportation networks, mm. the, I mean, it does become kind of an obsession through the 1860s, 70s, 40s, maybe even up to the outbreak of the war um, in Central Asia. This idea of uh, sending in officials, um, the royal family, the rulers of a Russian Turkestan—they really do want to see this area transformed from something barren. It seems. Mm-hmm. In, into something that that's absolutely flourishing. So I guess that's part of my question on on the canals. There there seems to be um, there are two parts to my question. One, what is the scale for these irrigation engineers building the canals in the old imperial period? And then secondly, what is the the kind of displacement? I don't know if that's the right word, but how does this affect other transportation networks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. So the, on the question of transportation, I deal with this a bit in chapter one, because for Russians, rivers were the main forms of transportation in the 19th century. Russia really didn't get uh, an extensive railroad system until the late 19th century. And so the, the big rivers of uh, Russia had always been the, the real um, trade networks. And in Central Asia, the rivers were much shallower. Uh, They were filled with a lot of silt. They often changed their course, and it was much more difficult to use them for navigation. Uh, And so there was a, a kind of a transition, I would argue, from the Russians looking at the rivers of Central Asia as trade arteries, as potential trade arteries, uh, and and even the idea of creating what would basically amount to a, a sort of a giant canal. Um, they thought they might be able to redirect the waters of the Amudarya away from the Aral Sea and towards the Caspian Sea. Uh, and, and this actually eventually has basically come to pass uh, in the late 20th century, the um, Karakum Canal was built through the Turkmen deserts to connect the Amudarya with the Caspian Sea. And and that's really what has led to a lot of the diversion of water from the Amudarya. It now goes out and it it either evaporates in the Turkmen deserts or it soaks into the the sand because the canal is unlined. That's a huge waste of water. But anyway, this is kind of the initial vision that that the Russians had for the waterways of Central Asia was was for trade and transport purposes. There was this idea of those old uh, silk road trading routes, um, that Central Asia had been a hub of commerce, and that a kind of giant Eurasian waterway could 
connect Russia more easily with the riches of places like China and India, uh, that that trade could be diverted instead of through uh, the British Empire, farther south through places like Persia, that water could, could uh, sorry, that trade could be made to, um, to instead traverse the Russian domains, uh, the Caspian Sea is connected to the Volga River. So if you could get goods into the Caspian Sea, you could then transport them up the Volga into Russia and farther on into Europe. So that was kind of this initial vision. Uh, but then there's really a shift. Uh, railroads are built in Central Asia, and uh, those become the more reliable uh, means of transportation, uh, as they were then um, in the Russian Empire as well. And so there's this shift towards thinking about canals, as you said, uh, and thinking about using the water instead uh, to irrigate barren lands. And that point that you made about um, the the visions of the future really being based in the past, uh, this is something that I got from many of the travelers' accounts. Uh, They travelers through Central Asia would often remark on the traces of old irrigation canals that you could find in the deserts. And this was proof that there had been these great civilizations in Central Asia in the past uh, when it was this hub of Silk Road commerce. Uh, And so for these travelers, the idea was that there had been this kind of glorious past uh, in the region. And if water could once again be brought to these places that were now barren, that were now seemingly wasteland, uh, that these regions could be made to flourish once again. And that was in many ways a kind of legitimating uh, idea for uh, the Russian Empire, I would argue. Certainly it's what drove the Grand Duke Nikolai Konstantinovich, this idea that uh, if he could be the one, and if the Russian Empire could be the one to bring the water to this land, this would make them the, the rightful rulers of this place and it would earn them a lot of respect in the eyes of the indigenous population so there there came to be then yeah. this, this real kind of yeah as you said a, a sort of obsession with uh trying to create canals that could actually achieve this and it turned out yeah. to be much more difficult than the russians were aware of um and i i argue that part of this is because Russian engineers were trained in places where there was too much water. Uh, That was the problem of Northern Europe. That was certainly the problem of St. Petersburg, which was a city reclaimed from the marshes. People were much more worried about controlling flooding, about draining swamps than they were about uh, bringing water to places where there wasn't any. And so one of the things that I found out was that in places like the Hungry Steppe, over and over again, attempts to create viable irrigation canals failed um, or they failed in their their duty to make land fertile because arid soils have a lot of soluble salts in them and if you put too much water on the surface of the soil it brings these uh, salts up to the surface it leaches them up to the surface Mm. and they form these crusts on top of the the soil and and european observers certainly noticed this in certain parts of central asia that the the topsoil was salinized and therefore it wasn't good for crops. Uh, and so this was something that, that the Russians really had to learn to contend with, but it took them a very long time. And it's, it's kind of puzzling 
why they continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, the story yeah. of the hungry step is, is really told as kind of a late Soviet success story, but nobody likes to talk about the fact <laughs> that they were really trying to do it <laughs> for the century before that and failing. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, I mean, in your second and third chapters, you move from the story of his Imperial Highness, um, the Grand Duke from the hungry step into the irrigation age. You know, I, I, I sometimes, wonder as a, as a geographer and, and someone too has studied climatology um, why the imperial officials and why the travelogue writers didn't take in more local knowledge um, do you see that the Bolsheviks learn any lessons from these failures I, I mean if I can shift kind of forward from the late, Romanov or late imperial period now to the Bolsheviks and, and their outsized ambitions. Um, did they, do they learn anything from the former, let's say imperial experiences from the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't really see much learning taking place. Uh, in fact, I mean, one of the arguments that I make about this idea of an irrigation age, which you just mentioned, uh, is that the similar kinds of ideas about transformation of arid environments were circulating uh, in the late 19th, really starting in the, in the 20th century around the world, that uh, engineers in different parts of the world, in particular uh, the American West, uh, from which engineers went to other arid places. They went to places like Australia. Uh, and they also went to Central Asia. Um, and they really believed that uh, they had a kind of universal knowledge that could be applied anywhere uh, and that could be used to transform the deserts. Of course, others were doing this as well, for instance, the French in North Africa. Uh, and I don't see many of them really trying to learn much from uh, indigenous ways of, of doing things, even though indigenous people had worked out ways of, of water management uh, that did adapt to arid environments. I think one of the problems here is the problem of scale. So there may yeah. in fact have been things that That's worked for point. Central Asians on a small scale, on the scale of a community or several communities along uh, you know, one part of a river or a, a small scale irrigation system and that those were sustainable practices and that those elaborate methods of, of you know, calculating each year how much water there was and how much water uh, each person needed and how to distribute it. That's possible on a small scale, but it's not as possible. It's not as sustainable on a large scale. So I don't entirely want to fault these engineers either. They wanted to come up with uh, systems that would be manageable on a large scale that would allow for uh, the kind of calculations that the Central Asians were doing in their communities and on their, their irrigation systems, but perhaps for a much larger um, region uh, and that would allow to kind of forecast uh, how much water is going to need to be distributed when and where in a way that was, that was more systematic and that was um, easier for for kind of just a couple officials to oversee that was the idea that using modern building materials 
you know, creating permanent dams, for instance, with, uh, with steel gates, uh, canals that were lined with concrete that didn't lose water to, uh, to seepage. Um, that th- these were, you know, ways of uh, creating less labor-intensive systems and, and systems that were perhaps more easy to control and, and more predictable, which really could be good in an arid region. Um, and the problem was that that it was it was harder than uh, <laughs> yeah than anyone really wanted to admit. Yeah, and and of course there's the long there's the long wartime experience really from 1914 stretching well into the 1920s there there are there are fears about people who are involved in projects including you know the laborers falling ill with with diseases right like typhus Mm -hmm. or or smallpox um what are the bolsheviks worried about Are, are they let's say from the disturbances that that happened during the war into the planning stages of what they call decolonization as part of the Soviet experiment. What, mm-hmm. what are their, what are their major concerns or, or their primary concerns? Let's say the, the communist party um, in Turkestan, or let's say from the center to the periphery, what are they worried about? Uh, in the period of the, the, the upheavals of the revolution. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking of your chapter on Bolshevik visions for Central Asia. So I, I think this is chapter five. And, and, you know, of course, they are worried about hunger, but they're also, you know, slowly, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, pushing people towards sedentarization, right? And so what, mm-hmm. are, what, are, their, what are their anxieties? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, because that period saw a lot of people uh, who had lived in these borderland regions uh, fleeing. So there was a major uprising in Central Asia just before the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, and a number of uh, nomadic peoples crossed the border into China uh, in the early 1920s. A lot of people who had uh, relatives in places like Afghanistan and in Persia also crossed the borders and, and left the region. So the Bolsheviks in the 1920s were uh, in many ways concerned about this outflow of people, uh, of wanting to get people to return to Central Asia. They were also worried about uh, various opponents of the new regime. So there were uh, people who uh, in um in various ways uh, opposed and resisted Bolshevik rule in Central Asia. Uh, sometimes that took on the form of uh, destroying canals, of refusing to plant cotton, uh, of planting food again instead of cotton. So um, this was a, a time when the Bolsheviks really wanted to reassert control, uh, to restore production in the region. Many of the irrigation canals simply stopped functioning because there weren't people to maintain them. There weren't pe- people to attend to their upkeep. And so the um, production of cotton plummeted and the Soviets wanted to continue using Central Asia as the main base for uh, cotton production in the country. In the Tsarist period, there had been a lot of concern about American monopoly of the global cotton market. This was not right. just a Russian concern. Right. This was a concern right. all around the world. And so Central Asia was, was 
the Russian solution to being too dependent on, on imports of American cotton. And so the Soviets really continued this. And of course, this takes on a new valence, uh, kind of an ideological desire to be free of free from dependence on capitalist countries like the United States. Uh, so Central Asia really has to continue to be the, uh, the cotton producing region of the country, but that's difficult if you don't have laborers or if your laborers are refusing uh, to participate. And so a lot of the 1920s is about trying to reassert control, trying to uh, entice people to come back uh, to settle in Central Asia once again, that decolonization scheme that you mentioned, part of um, what happens in, in Semirechia is, which was the, the site of the um, Chu Valley irrigation project uh, in the 19-teens, after many of those nomadic peoples from the region fled to China, uh, there's many, many Russian colonists, Russian settlers took over their lands. And so there's actually in the early 1920s, the Bolsheviks undertook a program of, of uh, trying to deprive those Russian colonists of the lands that they had illegally seized and, and returning them to the nomadic peoples in an attempt to get them to come back. Of course, many of them uh, had died uh, while trying to flee over the mountains into China. Uh, and, and so the repatriation efforts were only partially successful. Yeah. And, and I guess, I, I mean, I do have to kind of ask you about the Terry Martin, Francine Hirsch question. So there, there's a shift out of the NEP period from the new economic policy into the first five-year plan. And a lot of the administrations change, I think, in 1929, 1930. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, how much of a change is this, let's say, out of, out from 1928, 29, 30, 31? How does that sort of like um, impress you? What are your arguments? Um, what are your arguments with scholars in the field about that particular moment in time from the Central Asian um, ecological vantage? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly collectivization the collectivization of agriculture, which was part of this uh, so-called Stalin revolution during the first five-year plan. Uh, that is a major change in Central Asia as well uh, as, as in other parts of the country. Um, I unfortunately wasn't able to uh, do that much archival research on collectivization, uh, but I do have, have uh, some data about um, the kinds of forcible changes that took place in uh, the Vakhsh River Valley in the 1930s. There were also a lot of uh, so-called special settlers who were being brought into the region to work on construction projects. These were people who had been accused of being kulaks, uh, so-called rich peasants in places like Ukraine, and were um, being... uh, forced to move to remote parts of the Soviet Union, including Central Asia. Uh, So we see a a kind of an influx of uh, forced migrants who are then asked to do forced labor. So that's something that's that's really new Mm. in this period. And and one of the things that that I had looked at uh, in the the Tsarist period and and even into the 1920s um, was these uh, networks of laborers who cross borders. So a lot of the earlier irrigation projects had depended on 
labor that came from neighboring states such as China um, and Afghanistan. Many of the the laborers uh, would come and and they would do seasonal labor and then they might return to their home countries. Um, And those labor networks really start to to dry up in this period. And, And by the 1930s, Central Asia is really closed off from uh, from its neighbors, and so that makes a, a place that had really once been much more central, uh, both as a hub of trade, um, but also within these kinds of uh, these regional networks, um, it, it makes Central Asia much more isolated and uh, much more peripheral, and so that's a change that we really see uh, taking place in this this time as well. So a, a kind of um, a much larger uh, lack of, of mobility, uh, either from, you know, uh, farms to, yeah. uh, to, to other regions or um, people are brought down from yeah, the mountains yeah. to eventually yeah. Yeah. Um, to settle in the valleys. That's also part of the kind of sedentarization type campaigns of, of, right. this, um, of this time. So, so less freedom of movement. Uh, both within the region and between the region and other regions. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's interesting as you point out, I think um, toward the end, when you begin talking about the Earl Sea, this idea of, of closed places and, and even, you know, people sometimes forget that the Earl Sea basin is a closed basin. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, after Stalin's death, there are still more canal projects, right? And, yeah. Um, the canal projects continue and, and maybe, I don't know if in your estimation, they continue making the same mistakes that they did before. Um, but I, you know, I do want to ask the RLC question because it, it's not like history stops after, after Stalin's death in 1953 with all of, all of the different scales that you mentioned. Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't. And, and in fact, uh, of course that, that is when, the really successful river diversion projects begin. Right. Uh, there's, you know, successful uh, large canals such as the Karakum Canal, and uh, that one certainly continues to uh, repeat mistakes of the past. Uh, one of the arguments back in the 19th century of people who didn't think that trying to connect the Amu Darya with the Caspian was a good idea was they thought you, you can't build a canal that long. The water will never mm. reach the sea. Right. It'll right. all evaporate before it gets there. And, you know, in fact, the, the Karakum Canal was built, but it does lose about 50% of its water, uh, either to evaporation or to, to seepage into the soil. So it's not efficient at all. Um, and you know, did they learn a lesson from that? I, I'm not really sure. Uh, well, 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 that leads me to my question about you and what lessons you learned working on the project for, I think it must've been almost 10 years, right? Um, so, you know, technology and technocracy as a means of liberation, can I ask that as a philosophical question, <laughs> all, all of the empirical research that you've now done on the Soviet experiment and um how do you how do you see that yeah i think i think it's really challenging i think again it comes back to this question of of scale uh there are a lot of things that are possible on small scales 
um, that are, you know, can be sustainable for a small group of people, for a small community that just aren't possible on a large scale. And I think that's a challenge that uh, the Soviets faced in Central Asia. But I think that's also a, a challenge that, that we face here in the United States um, and that people face around the world today. Uh, you know, we have these ideas that, that technology can make our lives easier and make our lives better. And, and in many ways, uh, it can. And I think Central Asians who participated in these schemes uh, and who wanted, you know, more modern forms of, of uh, irrigation technology, for instance, should not be faulted for that. Um, but then it turns out to be really challenging to, to make these kinds of projects sustainable. And we tend to want to just fix them uh, with more technology. Um, so that idea of a, of a technological fix, well, if, you know, if this didn't go so well, we'll just do something bigger and we'll do something better. Um, and that'll fix the problem. Those are usually very uh, short term. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, the question of, of water management on a large scale, even if we have the technology to bring water over large distances uh, and to, you know, distribute it to uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in a very sophisticated way using very modern technology, um, that doesn't solve our fundamental problems uh, that that water is often finite um, and that we're still dependent on things like rainfall in the mountains. Um, to make sure that we have enough water to deliver via that sophisticated system. So I live here in California and uh, finishing the book in California was really interesting because California and Central Asia uh, share a lot of the same, uh, the same problems. So uh, in both regions, the water mostly falls in the mountains and it's trapped there in the form of snowpack or, or glacier. And then in the late spring in the summer, that snow begins to melt. And it comes down to the lower lying regions, which are warmer uh, and flatter and much better in general for agriculture, but also lack their own sources of water. They're really dependent on the water that comes from the mountains. So we've come up with, with things like uh, canals and, and reservoirs and uh, different ways of, of controlling the flow of the water and where it goes. Uh, but we're still very much dependent on whether or not there is water. So uh, this last February was the driest February on record in California since 1864. Um, wow, which yes. Is, yeah, which yeah. is kind of crazy if you think about it. And so yeah. the, the question of, of drought, the question of getting water to farmers, um, even clean drinking water, even here in California, there are millions of people who don't have clean drinking water. So I think one of the things that I really learned is that all these kinds of, of environmental stories, um, they're not confined to a particular place, um, that people face the same kinds of challenges everywhere and that there aren't any easy fixes. Uh, and so even though uh, we would like to condemn the Soviet Union uh, for what happened to the RLC, uh, first of all, American engineers were, were very much involved in those schemes and in similar schemes in other places in the world. And second of all, we don't have uh, good solutions to the kinds of problems that, that they were trying to address and that they were trying to fix. Yeah. And I found it fascinating that you finished your book in California. You seem to have been writing it in Cape Town, South Africa, right? Which was at that time in 2018, it 
city that almost ran out of water. So, I mean, your point is your point is absolutely valid, not just in the United States and California or Flint or Standing Rock, but mm-hmm. I think there's plenty to be done for environmental justice. And, and your book is, I think, an exceptional contribution um, to that, to thinking about that in a much wider perspective. So uh, I want to ask Maya Peterson from Santa Cruz here uh, what what she's interested in and and what she's working on now. What are your current projects, Maya? So I've uh, been working for a while on uh, something that may just be an article, but it's related to the book, and it's about the uh, plans to reverse or or at least partially redirect water from the rivers of Siberia, which flow north to the Arctic Sea, and to get them to flow southward uh, towards Central Asia. And this is actually a a scheme that first appeared in the 19th century, and it's been periodically raised again and again, um, most notably by uh, former Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov, who uh, wrote to Putin that maybe uh, Russia could sell its water uh, to the Central Asians for, uh, for use in, in agriculture and, and drinking purposes, which just seemed to me so ironic given this long history uh, that I tell in Pipe Dreams of how Russians deprived Central Asians of many of their sources of water. So that's, um, that's just a small project. But then the bigger project that I'm working on that I hope will be a book is on um, the uses of kumis, which is a uh, fermented mare's milk produced by the nomadic peoples of the Eurasian steppes. Um, and the, the use of this kumis in a medical setting, uh, really from the 19th century to the present and uh, Many people don't know, but uh, fermented mare's milk had a, a heyday in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was thought to be a potential uh, cure for tuberculosis. And so not only were people sent to tuberculosis sanatoria in uh, the Russian steppes, but even here in the United States, you could purchase uh, fermented mare's milk from your local pharmacist. Um, and it was said to, to cure all kinds of, of ales. So I'm interested in the, uh, the appropriation of this indigenous yeah. uh, drink and it's uh, into really into yeah. Western uh, medicine um, and I, the idea that it could be used to, to cure the ails of an industrialized society. Maya, that's, that's amazing. I, honestly, that is something I never would have, never would have thought of that. That sounds well, like an absolutely fascinating project. Yeah, and if you're interested, you can still visit a uh, climate kumis sanatorium. Wow. <laughs> uh, there are, are many, or, well, several probably. Um, I visited one uh, near Ufa last summer, and there are uh, others in, in places like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan today. And if you have a doctor's note, you can um, drink large quantities of fermented mare's milk and hopefully feel better. This is Stephen Siegel on the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Maya Peterson for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Professor Peterson is an Associate Professor of History 
at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she is the author of Pipe Dreams, Water and Empire in Central Asia's Errol Sea Basin, published by Cambridge University Press 2019. Thank you so much, Maya, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs>